This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 5. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I also teach at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Hello. He's, He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's also a columnist for National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together and bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, it's always great to see you. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion, or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod, and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. Once again, that's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Hey, how are you doing? What's been going on? David, lots of things. Good things. Like you, we're chugging along through the semester, and we were just talking off air about how Basically, we're beyond the halfway mark for the Francis Effect Season 5. And similarly, we're beyond the halfway mark the season fall semester 2019. So, you know, the semester is going well. Courses are going well. But it's it's that time of year where papers are starting to be due, which means professors like you and me are starting to have to look at lots and lots of papers <laughs> and that sort of thing. Is that your situation? It is. But in, a, in addition to that, well, I, I assign papers throughout the semester. And so I'm, I always have kind of a constant hum of paper grading going on and review and all of that. But also on top of that, you've got a lot of international travel this semester. You are jumping to England every few weeks. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As glamorous as it sounds, it's not quite glamorous. And and I should not mislead our listeners too that I also assign regular <laughs> weekly papers. So uh, it's not all to the end, but the, the big research stuff comes in there kind of in one big shove there at the end. Yeah. As our listeners, as you're listening to this, having dropped during the first week of November, I'm back on the other side of the pond this time participating and presenting at an academic conference at the University of Durham on the Franciscan tradition. And so the University of Durham, a great research university over in the UK, very, very well-funded, great programs and centers that they have there. And one of the things that, that they've been able to do is 
bring really some of the best Franciscan scholars from around the world together for this event. So I'm excited to be there. And as you're listening to this, I am, God willing, already there. And yeah, it's it's been, you know, that, that sort of thing. I'll be back this Saturday to San Antonio, where I have the great privilege of being the keynote speaker at the Archdiocesan Annual Assembly. And so if you're listening to this in the greater San Antonio region, you know, please come and join us. It's it's really cool. I, I spoke there as one of the kind of breakout session speakers last year at their invitation. And in the kind of aggregate of the people who attend, it's about 4,000 people. And what's really cool, if I may give a shout out, I mean, I, I think the world of the diocese, the Archdiocese of San Antonio, in particular, Archbishop Gustavo, who if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. He really... It's just an excellent pastoral minister and somebody whose heart is, like with Pope Francis, recognizing that the church should be a poor church for the, for the poor and for migrants and for refugees and, and all those who, who suffer the effects of ill effects of our society and decisions that are made. Yeah, it's just an extraordinary event. One of the things that funds this assembly is the annual Archbishop's Appeal. And so, you know, half of the cost per person is paid for by the diocese itself. And so for a whole day event with, you know, just an extraordinary series of, of talks and, and, you know, Christian music and all sorts of stuff that ends with a big mariachi performance, which is very, very exciting. It's very affordable. So it's something like 20 bucks a person. Um, it's, it's really cool to see the people the people's contributions going back to the people in this ongoing formation and education and living out and celebrating the faith. Well, and speaking of shout outs, I just want to say how thankful I was to get a chance a couple of weeks ago also to talk to you about your new book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, over on my other show, Things Not Seen. That was a hoot. And that conversation is to be continued over beverages because there's a lot more that I want to dig into. It's a really fine book. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that interview, please go back and listen to it. Thank you. Thank you. And so, yeah, how are you? You were just in Kansas. I was You're in, not in Kansas anymore. No, not, not anymore. So I got invited to Kansas to Southwestern College, which is a college that I had never heard of, but they have an endowed lecture every year. And last year it was given by the president of Union Theological Seminary, Serene Jones. And many years ago, back in the 1960s, it was given by a theologian by the name of Howard Thurman. And so it is a chance for uh, theologians in practice to come and talk about their practice. And I got invited to come and give it, and I gave a talk. I was asked specifically to talk about theology and podcasting, and so I spent an hour talking about that, but also had a chance to appear on a live podcast hosted by some of the directors there uh, that, that work with the Department of Theology and Philosophy and enjoyed being a guest because I'm not often a guest on podcasts. But then also at the very end of the night, uh, I got a chance to tape a live podcast of Things Not Seen with a theologian Jackson Lasher and the uh, philosopher Jacob Goodson. And so that'll be on Things Not Seen in a couple of weeks. And I'm excited about that because it was a really fun night. The crowd was great. We had about 70 people there listening, which was fantastic. The energy in the room was great. It was at this winery. And so there were, Ooh. there were, there, there was ambiance, let's just say that. And it, it was a very enjoyable time. Although, as you know, with all travel, it's also exhausting. And so I have been sleeping a lot in the days since just because I, I tend to get my batteries drained when I'm that social for that long. Well, and, and something too, yeah, I'm familiar with the, the kind of 
the tiredness that comes with it with travel. But unlike you, I, I don't have a new house that's being moved into and a, a family and kids and all this sort of stuff and a, and a job. So you're juggling a lot. And um, I'm glad to see that, you know, all these great things are happening. I look forward to those podcasts. And I have to say, I was thinking about this the other day. Twice a month when we sit down in the studio to do this, it's a great sort of break from, you know, all these other wonderful things that we're doing. So I'm really grateful for this and I'm grateful for our listeners. Absolutely. Me too. And so on our show today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the fires that are raging through California at the moment and their connection to climate change. We're going to be talking about the close of the Amazon Synod, and there's a lot to talk about there. And then we're going to be doing, at the end, a kind of question and answer session where I get to ask my friend, Father Dan Haran, a lot of questions about different religious orders and minutia and trivia about Catholic life. And so that should be enjoyable, too. So you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss current events, politics, culture, all from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. For the past two weeks, Northern California has been hit with rolling electrical blackouts. Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, the utility company that services the area, has been doing this as a preventative measure. The company wanted to avoid the possibility of their aging equipment and electrical infrastructure setting off yet another series of raging wildfires as happened last year. And this is in part because of the dry season and the high winds. Unfortunately, the fires have indeed returned. Last week, the wine country of Sonoma County was ravaged by a blaze known as the Kincaid Fire. The fire began near where PG&E says it suffered a wire failure around the same time. According to an October 28th article by Carlo Marnucci on Politico, quote, PG&E said it would take a decade for the utility to ensure that its wires are fireproof, until which residents may be forced to face continued blackouts during dry, windy conditions such as those experienced this month, end quote. Former California Governor Jerry Brown has gone on the record to directly link these raging wildfires to climate change. Brown said, quote, this is serious, but this is only the beginning. This is only a taste of the horror and the terror that will occur in decades to come, end quote. What are we to think about this? Well, you mentioned the Kincaid fire. There's also the Getty fire, which is raging on West L.A. towards the area where the Getty Museum is. And one of the things that we need to note about this is that it's kind of a, forgive the, the phrase, a perfect storm of problems. So we have PG&E, which is a utility and utilities are supposed to be run for the public good. But if we remember Enron, Enron was sort of the, the tip of the iceberg of the deregulation of utilities and allowing them to run for private profit and to be run as kind of investment hedges. Enron created rolling blackouts and ended up having massive chaos simply with the electrical grid. And now we see an aging electrical grid with deferred maintenance that is sparking off again and again, literally sparking off these wildfires. That's one side of it. The other side of it is as climate change continues, the winds become more intense and the, and the wind being more intense fans these flames. And so what we have is a fire will be shooting embers into the air. The wind will catch the embers and, and blow the embers to a mile away and it'll touch down and then an acre will go up in flames and then 30 acres within 30 minutes will go up in flames. And that keeps happening where 
fires keep setting off other fires. And this is the second year that we've had this kind of catastrophic destruction. We know why it's happening, but the the ability to fix why it's happening is a more complex problem, both from the from the human side and from the climate side. Yeah, and, and as I understand it too, in addition to the failing infrastructure of these for-profit utilities like PG&E, which is, again, like you pointed out, a long-term ongoing uh, contribution toward the problem. We also have a long-term ongoing contribution to the problem in terms of development of, of housing and, uh, and location, as well as the, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, the re- reforestation, overforestation, the, I think, unabetted growth of, of plant life in certain parts of the state of California that had not typically seen it and had not typically seen that kind of growth because of natural wildfires. So this is something I think it's worth noting, too. You know, it's, it's kind of a vicious circle, if you think about it, that over the course of millennia, fires would naturally, you know, there would be growth that, that expands in dry seasons. There would be things like lightning storms that would set fire in the same way that these embers from human-made industry set fire today. And lightning does too, frankly. I mean, it's not just human error. Sometimes it is a kind of a natural occurrence. But there were no permanent homes or structures or highways or, you know, again, utility systems to be threatened by that. So the the forest would catch fire and, and certain parts of it would naturally burn, which was part of the life cycle of this ecosystem, right? You have this old sort of herbage, this growth that burns to the ground. It, it, it re-energizes, re, re, adds nutrients to the soil. You know, there are certain kinds of conifers, you know, pine trees that require reaching a certain temperature for the seeds to kind of be released from the cones, the pine cones themselves. Again, a kind of evolutionary signal that this was time for regrowth and renewal in the forest. And in a sense, I don't want to blame the victim here, but there's another 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 factor I'm pointing to is that we have inserted ourselves into a system in which fires aren't always a bad thing. And, and we've treated every wildfire like a bad thing, which has only led to greater and greater and greater you know, growth in the plant life. And then when you hit things like as a result of climate change, dry patches and seasons, the fires are only far worse because of that. The fuel is right there. I'm hearing in this echoes of conversations we've had in the past about the Franciscan sense of nature. And so we've talked about how the Franciscan sense of death is that it's a natural part of life. St. Francis called death sister death. Here we might call, in this case, fire sister fire in that sense. Brother fire in the canticle. Brother fire in the canticle in the sense that fire is a part of the natural order of things, as you're saying, not raging wildfires, but limited fire that that has kind of natural fire breaks and is part of a cycle in the forest. And as you said, certain parts of the forest don't work if the fire doesn't show up. But we have prevented that, and literally only you can prevent forest fires, that whole kind of Smokey the Bear campaign. The notion that all fire is bad has led to as you've said, an overproduction of fuel. So we have all of these factors that are that are contributing to this really horrible situation. When you can see the internal logic, right? The Smokey the Bear slogan is good because, you know, for humans, from the human vantage point, because, yes, we are the primary cause of some of those accidental fires, whether through cigarette smoke or campfires or these utilities burning out or what have you, barbecues, that sort of thing. Or as was the case in recent years, you know, that wasn't the, the gender reveal explosion, you know, that set fire, et cetera, et cetera. 
But if we shift our focus, so I appreciate you bringing up the Franciscan perspective, if we shift our focus to look at the rest of creation, including non-human creatures, you know, forest fires, wildfires are not necessarily bad. They are bad for us. And, you know, it's interesting. There was an article in the New York Times that looked at what has happened over the last hundred years. And it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that this like absolute all wildfires must be put out immediately was put in place. Again, because of the population explosion and the developmental growth in places like California. I'm not really sure what to think about this. I've got a couple of several minds about the, the circumstances. On the one hand, there's the ecological, environmental, and I would say theological perspective which is one that ties back to something that we have talked a lot about and something that I feel very convicted about, which is a, a need for a non-anthropocentric grounding that, you know, right now things are too urgent, lives are really at stake, you know, property and other things like the Getty Museum, you know, priceless works of art are under threat. And so this is not a time I recognize for us to be kind of waxing theological about this. However, I do think there needs to be some consideration for should people be living in certain areas, first of all? Do we need to kind of move into all of these places? You know, there's a sort of dominion model or approach to creation this way that we're going to subdue this. We're going to put the fires out. We're going to own this space. But I also think there's also maybe a proactive thing too: the control burns that, that are necessary to replicate what would take place in the normal order of things. Though, I don't know. I, I, that's one of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot there to think about. When we talk about Las Vegas and everything west of Las Vegas, we're already talking about land that has been incredibly adjusted for human need. It's a naturally dry, almost desert landscape, which we have made lush by diverting water. The, the old movie Chinatown is all about the, the ins and outs of kind of water control in the, in the Los Angeles area. And Los Angeles was largely made by st stealing water from farmlands. And that speaks to the kind of thing that you're talking about. We're already talking about a space that is not in a natural balance with its environment. We're already talking about a space where you've got these artificial interruptions of nature. And this is kind of, I hate to say it, but this is kind of nature not necessarily clapping back at us, but nature has a balance and balance will be restored. One of the things that I was also thinking about when we were talking about having this as a topic, I went back and looked at the catechism and in part three, section two, chapter two, article seven, which talks about the seventh commandment, and one of the things that it says in uh, paragraph 20, 2415 is respect for the integrity of creation. The seventh commandment enjoins respect for the integrity of creation. Animals like plants and inanimate beings are by nature destined for the common good of past, present, and future humanity. Use of the mineral, vegetable, and animal resources of the universe cannot be divorced from respect for moral imperatives. Humans' dominion over inanimate and other living things granted by the creator is not absolute. It is limited by concern for the quality of life of their neighbors, including generations to come. It includes religious respect for the integrity of creation. And that undergirds what we're trying to say here. Yeah, that, that's true. But it's also worth noting that the, the church's teaching has developed since 1992 when that was stated. And in the highest teaching that we have is, of course, Pope Francis's encyclical letter, Laudato Si, where he, he builds upon what that catechism is, is referencing. You know, the catechism is, as I 
tell my students, it's a wonderful, and as, as you've used it here on the podcast and just now too, it's a wonderful go-to for a quick reference. But I always tell my students, you know, if you want to know what the church teaches, look at the footnotes. And what that's summarizing there is is the tradition of, you know, that John Paul II and Benedict XVI and others have built on, you know, throughout you know, the many, many, many decades of Catholic social teaching and its development. And what Pope Francis contributes to in advancing this further is saying that not only do we need to be concerned about future generations of humans and that, you know, that there's a instrumental use of or a utilizing of non-human creation, but that all creation has inherent intrinsic value in its own right. And I think there's something worth thinking about, too, that our invasion, you know, in a sense, we've become an invasive species in different parts and different ecosystems where we had not been for thousands or millions of years, and we have not adequately taken into consideration what effect that would have. You know, we're so used to thinking about our own kind of human worlds and how non-human creatures are invasive species, different kinds of plants, different kinds of animals or insects, how they come in and kind of ruin, make our lives miserable. How do we reverse this? Now, there are going to be some listeners, I anticipate it right now, who are hearing me and they're going, what the hell is he talking about? But I think this is, I mean, it's, it's Franciscan, but I don't, I don't want to just limit it to the Franciscan tradition so it can be dismissed as optional. This is why I want to point us back to Laudato Si to see that this is what the Holy Father is saying, you know, that when we talk about our relationship to non-human creation, it is exactly what you're talking about, the integrity of creation. But more importantly, it's what Pope Francis has taught the universal church in talking about an integral ecology the human family as it relates to one another and as it relates to the rest of creation and as the rest of creation relates to itself. All of this is tied together. And I think what we see with the, the wildfires in California is exactly this at play. You know, they're tied together intrinsically. So you're tying us back to Laudato Si. I'd also, in our final few minutes on this topic, I'd like to bring us back to Rerum Navarum, because when we look at what is contributing to this, part of what's contributing to this is an imbalance in terms of a public good, a utility, being diverted. The resources that are meant for the common wheel, the common wealth, are being diverted into private interest. And that's, PG&E is not the first utility to do that, but when utilities do that, we see again and again that people suffer and innocents are suffering. People who who were not able to participate in the decision to change the course of this utility are now being expected to bear the brunt of it and taxpayers will be expected to bear the brunt of it. And so we see again the same thing that we've been seeing for the past decade and indeed for for generations where we we socialize risk and we privatize profit and wealth. And when we when we have an organization that is set aside for the public good, like a utility, that is turned towards that model, where once again, we are socializing the risk and we're privatizing the wealth, it's a violation of the whole Catholic idea about how goods are supposed to be used towards common ends and towards the betterment of public life. Well, and I think you're also naming, as the Holy Father says, you know, recognizing the simultaneity of the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. And on that second point, you know, the cry of the poor, I think, too— you know, I made the comment earlier in this conversation about should we be in these places? And I also re want to recognize that not everybody has the agency or the resources to make a choice to live somewhere else or to move somewhere else. And, and again, this is where the cry of the poor becomes so central because the people who, as, as Pope Francis says in the Dato Si, the people who suffer the effects of climate change, and let's not forget that, as Governor Brown points out, 
the increasing dry spells, the droughts, you know, et cetera, is a result of our affecting global climate and it's how it's, it's manifesting itself in this particular part of the country. There are folks who will suffer disproportionately, and those are the people who don't have the resources to go elsewhere. The folks who have country homes or own vineyards in, this, in Sonoma County, you know, they can get into, you know, their private jets or, God forbid, they fly commercial to move to another home or another place and do so with relative ease. But the people who work in those vineyards, the people who plant the seeds, who water the vines, who, you know, harvest the grapes, etc., oftentimes migrant workers, oftentimes people who are living in very precarious contexts, what recourse do they have? Well, and one of the things that Rerum Navarum says again and again is that when you're talking about disproportions of power, working people and employers— Catholic teaching is clear that they have to be in situations where they can negotiate freely towards common ends. And what's happening here is you have the rich making choices, and they are pushing those choices and the effects of those choices onto the poor without giving the poor a chance to freely negotiate for their own common good. So no matter how you slice it, it and and there are some our friends at the Acton Institute who may come and say, not well, my friends, <laughs> but but this is this is simply nature, and and there's you know that that there's always going to be a little bit of loss and disruption in economic cycles. Well, we've already talked about the fact that we are disrupting nature again and again in these geographic areas. So let's not talk about base nature as some sort of litmus test here. We're already controlling a great deal of nature. And if we're Catholic, we need to be taking these situations and we need to be turning them towards the common good, not the good of a few. And the teaching, whether we're talking about Laudato Si or whether we're talking about Rerum Novarum or whether we're simply talking about the Gospels, we're talking about that as the dynamic that we need to be bringing back into the center again and again and again. Well, sadly, this is becoming increasingly the new normal. It's going to be a question that we're going to have to deal with on an ongoing basis. Our prayers and and our intentions are with the people of California for their immediate safety and the safety of their families and property. And we hope that there is ongoing conversation and, and actionable change that results in, in response to these uh, horrible fires and all that's unfolding. So with that, we're going to take a break and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together and talk about topics in the news through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region officially came to a close. For three weeks, 185 bishops from around the world, as well as dozens of lay and religious advisors, observers, and experts, discussed an array of topics deemed urgent for the people of the Amazon region of South America. These discussions largely took place behind closed doors, with the Pope insisting on privacy in order for honest and direct conversation to take place. At the end of the three-week meeting, a document is drafted summarizing the conclusions and recommendations arising from the Synod and intended to be given to the Pope. The 185 voting members of the Synod vote on each paragraph of the text, with a two-thirds majority needed for any given paragraph to be included in the final document. While the full text has not yet been released at the time of this recording for the Francis Effect, reporting on the contents of the documents and the proposals presented to the Pope have stirred both excitement and frustration from various parts of the Church. Dan, what's in the final document that's gaining so much attention, and what are we to make of the Synod and these proposals going forward? So, as you mentioned, you know, the, the final document hasn't been uh, publicly released yet in its multitude of languages, but there's been a lot of reporting on the document and interviews with 
participants of the synod, bishops of the synod. And there are three things in the document that got a lot of attention, that, that garnered a lot of attention. And unsurprisingly, at least two of the three of these things have been on the radar of both those who are enthusiastic about it and the kind of detractors or critics of the of the synod and of Pope Francis in particular. And these three themes are married priests in the Amazon region, the possibility of uh, women being admitted to the diaconate, and the third is what's being called an Amazonian or Amazon right, R-I-T-E right. And I'll talk just briefly about each of those, but I also want to highlight, though they're getting the most attention and the most kind of controverted, as it were, there are lots of other things that were addressed as well, including following our first segment's conversation, including the ecological and human crises in the pan-Amazon region, right? So you have, you know, issues around indigenous rights and uh, human flourishing, uh, the role of poverty and capital investment, deforestation, pollution, all these sorts of things that are going on. Again, the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. And so that received a lot of attention, but that's not nearly as sexy or interesting as the possibility of ordaining married men to, to the ministerial priesthood. So how does something get into the final document, right? What is the role that it plays? So the Synod of Bishops is a consultative and advisory body that's convened on a regular basis to give recommendations to the universal church. Yeah, we talked about this before. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not a binding thing necessarily. But in order for something to be included in the final document, it has to receive two-thirds majority vote. And so there's a lot of support behind these things. The married priest question is about people's right to access the sacraments. That's the way it's being phrased, and that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Catholics in remote areas of South America that, because of a, sh a shortage of, of clergy, do not have regular access to the sacraments. So that's the first thing. And, the, and one proposal is to look into ordaining married men who are you know, kind of elders who are respected in the community. We've talked about that on the show in previous podcasts too, so go check that out. The next thing that came out as kind of a surprise was a recommendation to Pope Francis that he reopened the commission on the study of women being admitted to the diaconate. Now, a friend of the podcast, Phyllis Sagano, who was on that commission, who's been on our show in a previous season, reminded us when their work was done that there was kind of a report that was given. Pope Francis indicated that his reading of it was that there was kind of a split between the members of the commission. And so in a rather spontaneous way in response to the final document, Pope Francis didn't wait to respond to this question. He said, you know what, I'm going to reopen the commission and I'm going to add more people to it, more experts, more theologians, more historians, more scholars. So that's an ongoing open question. And the final thing is this Amazon, right? We have a lot of RITEs in the church, a lot of enculturated kind of ancient ways of worshiping. And this is something instructed by the general instruction to the Roman Missal and Sacrosanctum Concilium that, that the uh, liturgy of the church should be enculturated. And so there's a call for, are there ways of worship? Are there means of celebrating the Eucharist and the sacraments and prayer together that best reflects indigenous traditions that, as, as the document puts it, the patrimony of the peoples of this land? And so we can see examples of that. Uh, we're, we're recording this right around the time of Halloween. And so we have in the Latinx traditions, the Deo de los Muertos, the, those kind of those kind of things. We've got Simbengabi from the Pacific Island regions. We've got examples of ways in which 
these rights have been adapted and have absorbed some of these practices from their various cultures? Well, I would say, yeah, that's definitely true, kind of more broadly in terms of the, the people of God. Yeah, when you think of the the Day of the Dead and, and the Latinx contexts and Hispanic contexts, that's exactly right. Here, though, there, there it's actually a step further. It would be more analogous to, you know, what happened with Sacra Santa Concilium in the turn to vernacular inclusion of the liturgy so that you have languages like English and Spanish and German and so forth instead of everybody doing Latin. I think another example would be the way in which different communities incorporate music or dance or other things into their liturgy. So let me let me clarify this. So are we talking about something as radical as like one of the Eastern rites where there are kind of differences in the structure of the liturgy and the language of the liturgy that is more in line with a, a, a sort of a, an ancient tradition that is Byzantine, or are we talking about just an adaptation of language of the Roman rite? Yeah, so you're, you're getting closer there. It's not entirely clear, and I haven't had a chance to review the whole document, but the reporting suggests that it's closer to what you just said. So we think of like in the Indian context, uh, the Syro-Malabar rite, or we think of the Melkite rite, or, you know, exactly, as you mentioned, certain Eastern uh, Syrian rite, right? And, and this sort of thing. So my understanding is that it's actually a bit more profound than just practices or traditions that can receive a sort of imprimatur from the church, like we'd see with the Day of the Dead or this sort of thing, to, to say, well, what does the context, what does the form of the liturgy actually look like when we incorporate certain things? So I'll give an example. In, in a number of African contexts, I'm thinking in particular West African contexts, where you have a Catholic mass, oftentimes the gospel, the book of the gospels is processed in uh, with, with by members of the community. There's dance involved. Sometimes it's wrapped in a, in a, in a kind of a, a nice cloth that's symbolic of the community or that is that's of, of very fine kind of construction. You have, you know, drumming, traditional sort of music that would be associated with that uh, community. And I think something like that, you know, we're not talking about getting rid of the liturgy of the word, but how do we celebrate the liturgy of the word? What does that look like in the context of this indigenous or various indigenous cultures in the general Amazon region? Now, we should say that around this synod, there has been tremendous backlash from, I'm scare quoting now, traditional Catholics. Self-appointed. Self-appointed traditional Catholics. Yeah. And there's there's been a couple of styles of backlash, and I want to deal with the most extreme. So certainly part of what the Amazon Synod has looked at is the impact of climate change and the the centrality of the Amazonian forest to, it's basically called the lungs of the world. And so the destruction of the Amazonian rainforest is in many ways sort of contributing, it's the most contributing factor to climate change. There have been some traditional Catholics who have literally said on Twitter and other places, that's fine, let the world burn. There's a whole sort of cult of the death of the world so that the next world will come. And I just want to dismiss that out of yeah, hand. Yeah. As Catholics, we do not believe that. That yeah. is, that that kind of apocalyptic thinking is is not in keeping with Catholic tradition or, or teaching. And then to step back from that, there are those that were incensed that we would dare to adjust the Europeanness of our Catholic sensibilities. And that may be where we should spend the bulk of our conversation. Well, and that, I think you just hit the nail on the head there. I mean, what we're talking about here is is what the Council at Vatican II made very, very clear, that there is no one singular culture, language, a context in which worship is considered always and everywhere perfect. And this really does upset people who have 
And I'll just name it as I see it, which is a sort of Eurocentric, colonial, and I would dare say racist outlook and perspective when it comes to the liturgy. But you have some who go as far as to say, well, certain cultures can be more easily baptized and assimilated into the faith than others. And the implication of this is that a European culture can be more easily assimilated, even if it's if it's got pagan aspects. But a more, and I'm again scare quoting, primitive culture like the Amazonian culture, we can't dare to open the door to that culture because that culture is already God forsaken. And I've seen some of that language. Yeah, that language is is deeply troubling and, and problematic, and it's and it's got a long, long history. You're exactly right in terms of assessing what people are saying. And they're, they're entirely wrong. I mean, they're wrong on the account of the Second Vatican Council's call to enculturation. Even when looking at other traditions, non-Christian contexts, you know, the council makes clear that there is no truth, no thing that's good in other religions and cultures that the Catholic Church rejects, that we can learn from other traditions, religious and otherwise. But more importantly, you know, yeah, this Eurocentric vision of authentic Catholicism is a myth. And you kind of implied this a second ago, and rightly so. The things that we recognize as quote-unquote European, things like even the structure of our worship sites, our basilicas, come from Roman civil, Roman imperial context. Even the vestments that Roman Catholic clergy wear, the stola, the chasuble, all of these things are adaptations of sort of the Roman imperial context in the fourth century when Christianity becomes legal and then becomes the religion of the land. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's, you know, let's let's call a spade a spade here and recognize that our worship, our sacramental expressions, our at times theology, and certainly our liturgical calendar is and always has been an experience of enculturation because there's no other way. There is no context-less liturgy. If I'm hearing you correctly, the, the Roman practices that were adapted and incorporated into the church were by definition pagan. I mean, they, they, yeah, they, they, they worship they worshiped a pantheon of gods that were not the Christian god, all that. And, and, right. but, Constantine becomes Christian and all of a sudden, or at least authorizes Christianity, so we clear out all those old statues and we put up some crosses. I mean, I don't mean to reduce it so simply, but that is history. But what we have there then is, is the bringing of pagan symbols into the church and transforming those symbols to new Christian meanings and pagan dress and pagan, pagan rhythms those sorts of things. And and if we see that as sort of the foundation of the Roman rite of the church, then we can look at what is happening when, for example, the Pachamama statue is brought in as part of the, the, the worship going on at the Synod, and the outrage that this is an idol that's being brought into the holy space, whereas those who brought the idol, if we're to take them at their word, they believed that to be a version of our Blessed Mother, the Mother of the Amazon, there's, and well, there's and real confusion con- about that. Yeah, it, there, there's contestation around what is what is meant by that particular statue that was vandalized and destroyed by by thieves and, and hoodlums who were trying to make make a point, and it's this kind of Eurocentric racist point that says there's only one way to be Christian and identifies Christianity with particularly white European expression. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's not just a matter of bringing in quote-unquote pagan symbols and art and practices into a Christian context. It's it's the other way around. It's recognizing that if we talk about 
Catholicity, you know, we've we talked about this with regard to my book on, on things not seen, but the notion of Catholicity is throughout the whole. In fact, today's gospel, as we're recording this, is the is in part the parable of the the yeast and the as leaven in the in the dough, and and part of this notion is that it's everywhere, and oh, you know, there's nothing that God withholds God's self from in terms of human expression, in terms of human society and context. And so it's less a matter of us trying to impose some sort of external, outside of Christian, outside of God, outside of the Spirit's kind of operation into a authentic Catholic, you know, kind of a pre-made thing where we're trying to move a, a square peg into a round hole or something. Instead, it's how do we understand the relationship between particular cultures and contexts as they express their Catholic identity and Christian faith. And so the, the Pachamama statue is, is interesting. I lived in Bolivia for a summer, and, you know, on the feast of uh, John the Baptist in the middle of the summer, one of the things, it coincides coincidentally with a Quechua holiday, which is a recognition of Pachamama, Mother Earth, as it were. And so there's, you know, a kind of interesting overlap of people of indigenous descent in the you know South American context who are also baptized Christians and practicing Catholics who bring these two things together and they're seen together and therefore the feast of John the Baptist becomes it gains more importance because of its overlap in this in this particular way and I'm no expert in in liturgy, nor in, in in culturation. So I want to be careful about, you know, how I say this and, and to qualify that. But I do want to say that, you know, this notion that there's one way and that one way is a European way and that European way is expressed in sort of like Renaissance or high medieval kind of white art and, and language in terms of Latin and expression and so forth is misguided. And one last thing I'll say about this, um, I know you have more thoughts about this too, is that, you know, you rightly have been saying Roman right. The fact that we have to qualify it indicates its historical and cultural context as arising from the city of Rome, the Roman Empire, the Roman cultural milieu. And just like we have the Cyril Malabar right. And what's being proposed here is an Amazon right, which would be as valid and equal and as licit as the Roman right. We're drawing this to a close. We started out talking about one extreme, and I want to finish out by sort of naming another extreme, and that is that the controversy in the last weeks has surfaced once again a pernicious aspect of the trad traditional, and again, scare quoting that, kind of approach, and that is those who would say, and you've made several references to Vatican II, the Vatican II is not a legitimate council and that Francis is not a legitimate pope. Basically, if you are of that position, or if you are entertaining those kinds of ideas, you are flirting with Protestantism and you're flirting with schism. And the, as we've said several times on this show, the Catholic Church's understanding is that we have the visible head of the church in a locality. We have a bishop around whom the church is gathered in a geographic area, and the visible head of our church on earth is the Pope, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is involved in the in the naming and election and placing of that Pope on the chair of Peter. And so we have a legitimate Pope, and, and I would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's right, and, and I think everything you've said is correct. It's also important to realize, and this is another thing that's kind of hovering beneath the surface of our conversation that upsets a lot of folks who are critical or who are angry or confused and frustrated by this, which is the consultation of the laity. 
There were 300 meetings around the various countries and regions of the Amazon over the last two years in anticipation of the discussion that was going to take place, identifying what are the primary concerns, what are possible solutions, what are the needs of the people of God, and so forth. And so that's the importance of a synod like this. It's not just Pope Francis kind of from the top down. He is not the CEO of Roman Catholic LLC. He is the Bishop of Rome and as Bishop of Rome— In that office, he holds primacy. He's the first among equals, as you said rightly. Each local church symbolizes the church in its fullness with the bishop as the head around whom the entire communion of the baptized is in koinonia, is in communion. And so what we have with the synod is is a real engagement with the sensus fidelium, right? The engagement with the sense of the faithful, of their experience of the lived tradition, and that is being communicated, and it's the responsibility of Pope Francis, not because he's some kind of magical head of the company, but because as Bishop of Rome with papal primacy, he serves as universal pastor for the church. And he, therefore, has universal ordinary magisterium, and he can, therefore, channel, as it were, or teach and summarize what is surfacing from the people of God in a particular region or throughout the whole church. And so I, I think that's really important, and it's upset some people because they they prefer things, A, to stay the same, and to stay the same means to be white European, you know, Latin, ideally for, the, for a lot of them. And two, they don't think that there are, that the, the laity should be consulted or that regional bishops should be consulted. And I think it's even compounded by the fact, given this particular context of the South American region, that there's, there's a racism involved in this, particularly from a Euro-North American context, which is to say, you know, even this term, quote unquote, pagan, is a form of othering and a, and a mechanism of dismissal to say that, quote unquote, these people, you know, are pagan, are this, are that, just because they're of, of uh, indigenous descent and in, in communities and cultures different from the critics' own. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really very, very uplifting about the Synod on the Amazon is that attention to a decolonial perspective and an intercultural perspective, as was outlined in the Instrumentum Laboris. And the last thing I would say, and I'll shut up about this, because I know we're way over time in our segment, is that there's no such thing as a context-less liturgy or church. So every time you talk about the church, you know, you need to be specific about, are you talking about what expression, the Roman rite, the Syro-Malabar rite, and potentially the Amazon rite? And with that, there's a lot more that we're going to be able to say about this once the final document is made available to us. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and David Dalt is still David Dalt. One of the things we like to do here at the Francis Effect is to be a resource for those who have questions about Catholic ideas and practices. And if I may ad lib off script here, one of the things that prompted uh, the title Francis Effect and this very podcast was the brilliance of my co-host here, David Dalt's uh, desire to have conversations about the Catholic faith. And one of the pitches he made to me some five seasons ago, was it would be nice to talk about this whole Franciscan thing. You're a Franciscan friar. People want to hear about that. I want to hear about that. I want to hear about other things. So back to the script. Sometimes it's hard to find answers to questions about things like the various religious orders and their similarities and their differences. You know, what is a Franciscan? What is an Augustinian? What is a Norbertine? What is a Trappist? So David, 
you have an ongoing list of questions, some uh, extemporaneous, some well thought out and articulated. Uh, and I know you've collected some questions from our listeners as well. What do you want to know? Well, first of all, let me just ask. I go to a parish that up until recently was run by the Carmelites. The Carmelites wear brown robes. Yes, they do. You're my friend, a Franciscan. You wear a brown robe. Right now, too. Yeah. <laughs> and so It's a podcast. They can't tell that I'm not. So how, how are we supposed to tell the difference when we're looking between a Franciscan and a Carmelite if they're both wearing brown robes? And first of all, why do they both wear brown robes? Oh, man. Okay, so you started with the premise of one question and ended up with three. Very good. You're a good theologian. So I actually just had this conversation kind of an, on on the fly with uh, some parishioners over at Calvert House as I was leaving. I, I had the Mass at 11 o'clock there this past Sunday, and I was walking out and down the street with a, with a family who lives in the neighborhood, and I was asked exactly this question. The guys who are at St. Thomas the Apostle, the, Car- the Carmelites, they look like they're wearing the same thing as you. What's the story? Oh, a couple things. One, yes, we're both wearing brown robes. I have no idea why the Carmelites do. I don't know enough about their tradition. You got to ask a Carmelite. But I can tell you the difference between a Franciscan and a Carmelite. This is the easiest way to tell the difference. We wear a rope. We wear a cord and they wear a belt. And so that's the best way if you see a brown robe with a scapular, but even if you don't know what that means, the long piece of brown cloth in front and back in addition to the tunic underneath. But if you see brown fabric with a hood, you might think, oh, this is a Franciscan. If they're wearing a belt, a leather belt, they're a Carmelite. And if they're wearing a cord of any kind, a rope with three knots in it, they're a Franciscan. If they're wearing a rope here, there are no other religious orders that wear a rope. Okay, and so as I was asking you this, and part of what prompted this segment was you and I were walking back from an event at Catholic Theological Union, and we just kind of fell into this conversation. And this is what I, I just walk around Hyde Park <laughs> talking to friends and strangers about things religious. That is 82% of my time. I, I love that. <laughs> so one of the things that, that I discovered was that when we talk about religious orders, there are, for want of a better word, kind of hierarchies of religious orders. So some of them have seniority in some way. And I'd like to kind of dig into that. So yeah. first of all, when we, when we talk about different religious orders having a certain type of seniority, what, what do we mean? Well, yeah. So there, there's seniority. That's an interesting term. There's seniority in terms of historical origin, for sure. And there is a certain seniority, not in a judgmental way, not like better than another or something like this, but, but there are certain obligations, responsibilities, rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, that are afforded of some communities and not others. And okay, this, so give me, give me some yeah. examples. So first we need to go back to this term religious order. We use this very broadly. Order is technically a class of religious community or congregation. The congregation itself is a form of, is a species among the genus of religious communities. You have orders, congregations, societies of apostolic life, religious institutes, and a variety of other kind of minutia. There are very few what I would call big O orders. And one of the ways you can tell that they're a religious order proper is that the word order is in their name. And you can see that in our initials. So, order of Friars Minor. Exactly. Order of Friars Minor, OFM. Order of St. Augustine, OSA for Augustinians. Order of Carmelites, O-Carm, or Order of Discalced Carmelites. You have OCD. It's discussed. You know, it's in the Latin, so it, it gets rearranged in a way. The order 
of Cistercians of the Strict Observance, the Trappists. Oh, you have the Order of St. Benedict, the Benedictines. Um, you have the Order of Premonstrain, which is the Norbertine Canons Regular. And so Order of Preachers, for instance, with the Dominicans. There's a limit to the number of big O orders, and it dates back to the earliest forms of religious community, which were monastic in, in origin. And so you have the Order of St. Benedict, for instance, right? That's monastic community. Or you have the canons regular, like the Norbertines. They're, they're a big O order. In the Middle Ages, there was a new kind of life. Before the 13th century, there really were two kinds of religious communities. There were the straight up monasteries, monastic communities. And then there were, and this is of men's communities, and I'm going to limit it to that because women's communities are a bit more complicated. And we can talk about that too, if you want, with regard to order. And there are orders and institutes and congregations that vary among women. And so I have a quick question. Yeah. So when we talk about the order of Benedict, the Benedictine rule was one of the first monastic rules. It was a way of trying to get people to basically be able to live with one another in an ordered life. Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? The big O orders have some of these ancient rules that sort of uh, yeah, you're, descend you're, from the in a sense, in a sense, that's where that's so that's where the orders stop with with the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. The council declared there will be no more religious orders, and therefore no more new religious rules. And so you have the rule of Augustine. You know, Augustine's rule precedes by centuries. You know, because Augustine, when he before he was Bishop of Hippo, was a, was in a monastic community there in North uh, North Africa, and so there was the the rule of Saint Augustine. There was the rule of Benedict, and these were kind of yeah, as you mentioned, the kind of earliest, more ancient of the ways of forming a community. When I say rule, it comes from the Latin regula, which means measure. It's how one measures or organizes one's life. And so Francis and Claire came up with a rule as well. Well, so here's the interesting thing: what's what's the difference between the Franciscans and the Dominicans, we have the rule of St. Francis. The Dominicans have the rule of St. Augustine because they were formed after 1215. Dominic forms the order of preachers after the Fourth Lateran Council. He is not permitted. I don't know if he had an interest in it or not. I'm not a Dominican scholar, but, but as a matter of fact, he was not permitted to create a new rule because his community was formed after the Fourth Lateran Council. Francis was grandfathered in because in 1209, he had received a preliminary approval from Pope Innocent III. He had a, what we call the primitive rule or the forma vitae, the way of life that he had kind of presented to the Holy Father at the time. And because of that, there was this kind of ongoing development. And even though our rule wasn't formally approved uh, by Pope Honorius III until 1223, because Francis had that initial approval, he got in kind of under the wire. So the Franciscan rule is one of the last new rules for a religious O order. Now, I used to teach at a LaSallian school, the Brothers of the Christian Churches. Mm -hmm. And so that would be an example of a group that is not part of an order, capital O, but is instead organized in some other way. That's right. So they are a congregation, a religious congregation. I don't know of what sort, because there are societies of apostolic life, there are institutes, uh, you know, there are all these different kinds of things. But yeah, basically, when you get into the Renaissance, into the 16th century in particular, you have this flourishing of new, new forms of religious community that are focused oftentimes around a particular ministry. So the brothers, the sailing brothers are teachers primarily. Yeah. And I was going to say, the, the, now that I think about this, the Jesuits are the Society exactly. of Jesus. They're yeah. not the Order of Jesus. No, they're not. Okay. The Society of Jesus, you also have... You know, the Society of Divine Word, SVD, you have the, 
the Congregation of the Precious Blood, um, CPPS. You have the Congregation of Passionists, the CPs. You see, you know, there are congregations, there are societies, there are institutes. You have, yeah. So, th- so what does that mean, practically speaking? Practically speaking, it doesn't really mean much to most people. Canonically speaking, in terms of the church's juridical oversight, big O orders have certain privileges, and it, and it gets pretty complicated. One of the kind of shorthands, I'll give one example, is that members of religious orders are exempt from certain, um, certain penances that have recourse only to the local bishop. So this was something that was established in the Middle Ages for the mendicant orders in particular, who are itinerant traveling around preaching. So the Dominicans and Franciscans and Augustinians and Carmelites, for example. And there are certain, even to this day, there are certain sins that, that can only be absolved by the bishop or by the bishops with faculties granted by the bishop in advance. That's what most dioceses do today. Most bishops will grant all their priests permission, for instance, to absolve from the sin of, of abortion. That's one of the examples that's, that's in the Code of Canon Law. But we who are members of religious orders are already – we have the universal faculty to do that if we have faculties to celebrate the sacrament of penance. So we don't – you know, you could go to a Franciscan, you can go to a Carmelite anywhere in the world – and they, they're exempt from that recourse to the local bishop. This has to do with how we understand the church. And the church is a communion of communions. Each local church, we use the modern language diocese instead of church because church people think of as either the local parish or the whole thing. But really when we talk about church, we talk about the Church of Chicago, the Church of Birmingham, the, sh- the Church of Boston. Ministerial priests who are presbyters like myself, what we typically call priests, those who are ministerial priests that aren't bishops, do not have authority on their own to celebrate the sacraments or to exercise ministry. They participate in the fullness of priesthood that resides with the local bishop, which is why in our Eucharistic prayer, you always mention the name of the local bishop and the Bishop of Rome as a symbol of communion, right? You do not celebrate the mass on the authority of the priest himself. He doesn't. He does so in communion with the local bishop, right? I'm now in communion in the local church with Blaise Supich, the Bishop of Chicago. And so because I reside here, I need his authority. I need faculties granted permission to celebrate the sacraments publicly. Now, as a religious, here's another exemption. As a religious, I also receive faculties from my provincial who is also an ordinary. He's not a bishop, but he has this similar canonical powers to a bishop for things pertaining to the Franciscan world. So in in Franciscan houses, I actually if I didn't have faculties for some reason um, from the local bishop, I could still celebrate the sacraments with the permission of the, of the provincial in those Franciscan houses. So let me make sure that I'm tracking. Yeah. So as a member of a religious order, you have an ordinary that has the canonical status of a bishop, and that grants you certain rights that other people who are in societies or are in brothers or congregations wouldn't necessarily have? The the provincial of a religious order does not have – he's not canonically a bishop. It's not the same. There are many – by virtue of being the ordinary for the members of that order, he has a lot of powers and authority that resemble what a bishop has in a diocese. But it's not exactly the same thing. One's not ordained. He doesn't share, for instance, the fullness of priesthood that bishops have by virtue of their Episcopal ordination. Okay. So diocesan priests, for instance – and, and members of like the Society of Jesus or 
the Paulist community or the Passionists, if they reside in a diocese where the bishop who grants sacramental faculties to the priests does not automatically give them that exemption, then they would not be able to absolve from certain sins that are reserved only for the bishop, which means it's, it's pastorally insensitive, but it's true. In some dioceses, bishops hold on to this. That means you have to tell the penitent, we need to stop this. I need to call the chancery and get permission from the bishop for us to proceed, which is a real thing. Wow. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but for pastoral reasons, a lot of bishops, I would say the majority, at least in the United States of bishops, automatically grant those faculties preemptively to their priests. And so that will depend diocese to diocese. But what you're telling me is that a Franciscan anywhere will have certain of those. If a Franciscan or a Carmelite or a Trappist, because we're big O orders, right? But especially the mendicants, Franciscans, Augustinians, Dominicans. If we have faculties to celebrate the sacrament of penance in the diocese in which we reside, we have faculties to celebrate the sacrament of penance anywhere around the world. And by virtue of being a member of that religious order, we have a canonical exemption from that recourse to the bishop so that we we can absolve of those sins. Yeah. And so when we think about these big O orders, and and we, we can come back and we can talk more about this in episodes to come, but when we think about those big O orders and we think about that in the life of the church, what do these big O orders add to the life of the Catholic Church that would be lacking if they weren't there? Like, what do they add to the ecosystem? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it depends on the charism of the community. So the monastic orders bring uh, a, a different sort of focus on on a life of balance. I mean, that's a, a hallmark of the Benedictine tradition, a focus on contemplative prayer, um, a focus on, you know, persistent, ongoing, continuous prayer that is prayer for the church and for the world. So they they provide a kind of, not just a service in a functional way, but but model a way of Christian living too that's, that's distinctive. The mendicant orders of the 13th century, all the, you know, the Augustinians, the Carmelites, the Franciscans, the Trinitarians, um, we all emerged as a result of renewal in the church and the kind of need to meet people where they were, to break outside of the kind of parochial contexts or the monasteries, um, to have a community-centered way of living and modeling a kind of uh, a Christian life that, that had not been seen up to that point. When you see in the later centuries, like the 16th century, with the formation of the Society of Jesus by Ignatius Loyola, or you see some of the missionary communities like the Maryknoll Brothers and Fathers or the Society of Divine Word in the 19th century. You know, these, these communities, or the Lasallian Brothers, like you mentioned, these are communities that are founded with a particular apostolic goal in mind. They, they have a, a, usually a singular or a handful of ministries that are particular to them. There's a need in society, a need in the church, and the, through the promptings of the Holy Spirit, you know, their founders or their communities are, are created to respond to those needs. And so it really does vary. Yeah, and it changes, I think, sometimes in time. One of the greatest contributions I think the big O orders bring, it's not unique to us because, you know, obviously with the Society of Jesus, Ignatius's own kind of synthesis of approaches to prayer, drawing from people like Benedict and Bonaventure, the Franciscan, and from other religious traditions, there's been a, a very strong and powerful uh, influence of the Ignatian spiritual tradition. So I'm not saying that non-O orders do not have a spirituality, but I think when we think of the classic locus of Christian spirituality, we we oftentimes default to, and, and understandably so, the big O orders. So you think of Benedictine spirituality, 
You think of Carmelite spirituality, Franciscan spirituality, Augustinian spirituality. And they're sometimes tied to founders or sometimes they're tied to rules, regula, the, the way of life. But they're, as Pope John Paul II said in, in one of his texts, you know, he recognizes that the gift of the various charisms of religious communities, particularly the religious orders, is offering new life and a new vision of Christian living for the whole church. They're a resource for the whole church. This is fascinating. And like I say, we'll come back and we'll talk about this more. But for right now, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to answer some questions. And thanks for just this conversation today. As always, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Same here, David. To be continued. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We've got production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got so many episodes for you to go back and listen to, and we hope that you do. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening.